On set, there's a noisy fan here. I should bring a loudspeaking system. I don't know if it's necessary, but uh, does it help? Can you hear what I'm going to say? It's a real privilege and an honor to be asked to speak to this group. I should tell you that I keep a saying, uh, a Bible passage under my desk glass at home, especially when I'm asked to speak to an auspicious group of this kind. When I think of all the learning that is represented here, the various universities that are involved, and the tremendous amount of human intellect, it takes me back to Job 12, verse 2 and 3. Doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. You think Job was being a little sarcastic? <laughs> he had just listened to his friends give him advice. And he said, wisdom will die with you. But verse 3, I think, has advice that is particularly appropriate when it comes to a little flock like this trying to influence universities with thousands of students. Job says to his advisors, I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things that they were telling him? Now in this inspired word of God, what is he trying to tell us? I think the Lord is telling us not to be uh, intimidated by what passes for human learning. That took me a long, long time to learn in my own life. And I'm going to preface what I would like to share with you today by telling you a little bit of my own past and how the Lord worked in mysterious ways to keep his promise to me in trying to serve him. I remember a piece of advice I got or a piece of wisdom from my dentist, a Christian friend who uh, excelled in his profession. As a matter of fact, when I go to the dentist now, the first time I went to another dentist, I'm sitting in the chair and the dentist says, wait a minute, I want my nurse to see this. Well, I don't have the greatest set of teeth in the world. Some of you were amazed last night to see teeth on my key ring. <laughs> our, our daughter, Hans's sister, gave me this uh, set of teeth to keep my keys on. I don't know what the significance is. I still have my own. I don't need these. But the dentist called the nurse and said, I want you to see this. What do you mean you want you to see this? This is the best piece of crown and bridge work I have ever seen in my life. And here was a, a professor of dentistry at Stony Creek University working on my teeth. He said, where did you have this done? I said, my friend, Dr. Treber. And he said, I don't know if I'll ever see perfection like this again. The man was driven to perfection. And one time we were sitting there and he told me, you know what frightens him? And I'm telling him about teaching and now in my classes I'm trying to give kids advice on what to do with their lives to be of service to the Lord. And he said what frightens him in his entire professional life is that he is now doing as a professional choice what some immature teenager decided years ago to do for a living. Think about that. Things have become so technical today, so specialized, that unless you start, well, hopefully, at least by high school, to decide what you're going to do for a living, you're never going to get all the prerequisites in and the necessary training 
in order to work for at least a few years doing something. Hundreds of years ago, you were making a living at age 14. You were an apprentice to somebody and you were on your own. Today, people get out of college and out of graduate school and you ask them, what are you going to do for a living? I don't really know. This is after the parents have paid 20,000 a year for endless years. I don't really know. That is why with our own five children, and Hans can bear me out on this, and having taught in high school for many, many years, I told them one thing. When you go on to college, I'm not going to tell you what field to go into, but I tell you one thing. Once you pick a college, you stay there because I'm not paying for another one. Is that a true statement? <laughs> you switch, you're on your own. You want to drop out, that's fine. You want to wait 10 years before you go, that's fine. Your mother waited till she was 55 and then got her degree. But you go, you stick it out, and I'll pay half. If you don't value it enough to pay the other half, go bottle beer like I did, or shovel coal or something else. That's missing today. That's missing in the kids I have in class. And I brought with me an article. I thought Tom sent it to me. And I read it diligently because it's a reprint from the, um, doesn't even say what journal, but it's a long article and it says, Values and Morality in Corporate America by Gerald F. Cavanaugh, S.J. And I'm going to share some of these things with you because we're in a changing world, a changed world. Dr. Pollack and I, I hope we weren't talking too loud there at times, so he got pretty animated during the last study, telling me what things are like in his classes, and I'm telling him about my classes at Nassau Community College. We were sharing these ideas before how things have changed compared to how they used to be. A student comes in and says, what do I have to do for a B? That's today's academia. What do I have to do for a B? Never mind the A. In fact, I have another son who told me, you know, working for an A makes you miss a lot of your college education. You're missing out on something else. You're doing something too hard. The Puritan work ethic is gone. America was founded on the Puritan work ethic. It wasn't the Lutheran worth. I was brought up in a Lutheran community where I didn't know there was anything else to the world, virtually. Spoke German in this little town. We weren't so sure there was anything else. Self-sufficient. I never knew there was a depression. I grew up through the depression. I never knew there was one. There was no depression in our town. No one was on welfare. You didn't pull your own weight. You were obviously not working hard enough, and God, therefore, will not bless your efforts. Now, there's something wrong about that ethic, too. But what we have today, the me first, and second, and third, and then maybe somebody else, is not much better. So how did God see to it that I would find a niche somewhere to do something for his cause? Well, I was born with the innate desire to experiment with things. You'd get a toy, you'd take it apart. I had more fun looking at the pieces than at the original toy. 
I went to school and I was taught by godly men. There were no women teachers. I saw my first woman teacher in the 11th grade. We were taught by godly men that inquisitiveness is not particularly godly. This leads to temptation. It got Eve into trouble and Adam after her. And the epitome of inquisitiveness is science. Wissenschaft. You talk about the small catechism. I was confirmed by an English and a German pastor, each one of whom made us memorize 350 Bible passages in that language. And in Christenlehre after that, for two years after confirmation, every other Sunday, the pastor would come out and grill us again on those Bible passages. In a church of 2,000 people sitting there, and you better speak up so your mother can hear it. Now, I'll never forget one answer. One guy came. He was not the brightest guy, but he had a pass. He had to be confirmed. And so the pastor made sure he could answer a question correctly. And he, answered, he asked him, Manfred, wer hat die Welt geschaffen? That means, who created the earth? The kid was stuck. He broke down in tears. And he finally said, I didn't do it. Now, during his entire confirmation instruction, he was usually doing something wrong. <laughs> he came home, and his father beat him up and said, Manfred, I told you once and for all, if you did something, admit it. That's a secondary joke that takes a little while. <laughs> the father didn't know who made the earth either. So if you did something wrong, are you getting it? <laughs> We were told science was evil. I couldn't figure out why I had this interest in science that it would be evil. And in the seventh grade, we were all tested for the choir. Do, re, mi, up and down. And we made the choir, which is godly. Music was next to godliness in Luther's own language. And if you flunked, you could go in the other room and study science. My burning desire was to flunk that voice test. So I faked it. I cracked my voice and all this so I could go in the other room and rub a rabbit's foot and fur and all that and electromagnetic forces so I could study. Was that evil? It was disobedient. <laughs> my father and mother were disappointed in not singing in the church choir. That's where the flame was lit. Then I had a, a teacher, and we didn't have a high school in town. We had to drive 15 miles to go to high school. Only half of my confirmation class went on beyond the eighth grade. Why should you? You owned a farm. That's more than people do out of graduate school today. <laughs> I just went to my 55th confirmation anniversary. Out of 40 kids in the class, 30 were there. 55 years later, not one non-Lutheran. Half went to the 10th grade. Half of the ones beyond the 8th. Now we're down to 10. Two went to college. One of those who stayed home is now a multimillionaire, has the largest restaurant in America. Hans is going to be married there. Hans and Gretchen, the Bavarian Inn. 10,000 meals a day they serve there on occasion. 
he stayed home. <laughs> Another one started the largest Christmas store on earth, Bronner's Christmas Wonderland. He stayed home. Why did I want to go on? I come home, I'm the hero because I went to college. <laughs> the flame was fanned by a non-Lutheran teacher who said there's something about this universe, you should go out and you should, my entire science through the 10th grade was collecting leaves off a tree and flowers. The burning desire to know more about nature. I went to River Forest to be a teacher. I wanted to be an engineer, but my father said, if you go to engineering school, you pay it for yourself. You go to River Forest, I'll pay for it. Well, that was a pretty powerful way of reasoning, you know. <laughs> the first year there cost $140. Room and board and tuition. And lab fees, there were no labs. 140 bucks. Which, of course, meant that Synod paid your tuition. And if you didn't go out and work for the church, you had to pay it back. Also powerful reasoning. But where is all this desire to learn science? Well, you better go to summer school. There wasn't much science taught, so you better go on. What's a good university to go to? Northwestern University, I thought, was a very fine school. When I showed the admissions officer my college and high school record, they said, do you want to major in what? I said, I'd like to major in science. He went over to the next table and showed it to him, and I saw him doubling up. He came back and he said, if you insist, but you don't have anything on your record here, so we're going to put you on probation. Wife and kids at home, and I'm on probation. Well, that I don't want to prolong. I just want to tell you that the Lord had a way of showing that maybe the easy road is not the way that you should take. I got sent to the panhandle of Oklahoma to teach. I was telling some of the people before, the kids came to school on horseback. For recreation, we shot jackrabbits with six shooters <laughs> riding a horse. I never hit any, but at least I saw where the bullets hit. Then God said, put up or shut up. He sent me a call to a Lutheran high school that was just starting in Racine, Wisconsin, and he said, teach science here. But Lord, I'm just starting to take the subject. You take, you teach it. And then he said something else. He said, write some books on the subject. A Lutheran salesman from Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston, the largest science publisher in the country, came around, peddled his texts, and I told him, you know, Don, there's something missing in these textbooks, and that is there's not enough about astronomy because we're going to the moon. We're, we're doing things out there the kids are interested in. And he said, well, if you think you're so good, why don't you write one? I said, where do I write? Write to the editor-in-chief in New York City. Tell him you want to write a textbook. A guy came flying out. I couldn't believe it. He said, what is this textbook you want to write? About what? Astronomy, I said, it's not taught in high school. It ought to be taught in high school. And he left a contract on my desk. He didn't ask, what degree do you have? Have you ever taken astronomy or anything of that nature? Write the book. Three years. 
became the first and last high school astronomy text in the country because people considered it too difficult for high school. It didn't fit into the curriculum, but it did something else. It made Hold Reinhardt and Winston think that maybe they have a writer on their hands. And out of a sort of a guilt complex, when the book folded, they said, you worked so hard on this thing, we'll give you a chance with an existing text. Modern Physics, which is the biggest selling high school physics text in the nation. The second oldest text of any kind in the country. 1922. I don't know if you know how small textbooks used to be. This is what I studied physics out of in high school, 1936. So I started as an author of Modern Physics, hung in there, and by 1992 it got this big and by the grace of God, I ended up as the sole author after seven editions. That one cost 50 cents. This one is $35. There's probably as much learning in there as there is in this one. Probably is. But we have to have colored pictures now, you see. We have to have computer-generated tests so the teacher doesn't have to know anything. The computer randomizes the tests. So every kid has a different one. The computer corrects the tests and makes curves and tells the teacher which area he didn't do a very good job at. All part of the program, which now costs thousands of dollars by the time you do all this that goes in connection with the textbook. And through that, through going to conventions and keeping up with this, which it's not my choice, it's Holt's choice. They have an investment in me, and they say, we want this book to continue to lead the field. I began to have the opportunity to testify to my faith in a way that I could never have dreamed of before. People will come up at conventions and say, I noticed in your uh, title page here that you were a teacher at a Lutheran high school. What's that? So it's a Christian school. And they said, well, what's Christian about physics? What's Christian physics? And I've long since learned to tell them, Christian physics is physics taught by a Christian and taught a darn sight better than in most other cases. And the smile kind of wanes. And pretty soon I'm starting to put some of these things into chapter one in a country where you're not supposed to talk about religion, God forbid, or mention God's name in elementary and secondary public high schools. In college, you can talk all you want about God, I found out after I started teaching college, because somehow when you get out of high school and there are no more PTA meetings and so on, there are no more court cases about what the teacher says. But in high school, or are there? Well, I'll come to that in just a minute. I just gave out a sheet before. I want everybody to have a copy of this. So that's a kind of a short history of how I got to be a teacher and a writer. And I have to add one more um, opportunity that 
uh, will preface what my message really is all about. While I was teaching physics in high school and then astronomy in college, because I then also went on to write a college astronomy text for Holt Reinhardt and Winston with another professor of astronomy at the University of Wisconsin, the nagging feeling kept brewing in the back of my mind, am I really telling my students the truth? Am I telling my students what science is really like? Are the textbooks of America teaching science the way science should be taught? Not uh, the way perhaps it is taught in other countries. Do kids get the right impression of what the nature of truth is as it is revealed in the science text? One evening a man came to the house and he said, uh, I will never forget this, he came and said, I'm the father of one of your students. I'm a very wealthy person. <laughs> I'm a millionaire in fact, he said. Now that was in 1970. And my son came home and said, that you don't have enough money to do what you really want to do, and that is to go to the scientists of the world and ask them what they think about God and what the relationship is between religious truth and scientific truth. I said, that's true. I said, I have five kids. I said, oh, how can I do this on this salary? He said, I will set up a bank account, and you go wherever you want, and you take your wife, and you leave your kids home, and you go and talk to anybody you want and ask him anything, and I have only one requirement. What's that? I want half the royalties. I said, there may not be any royalties. How do you know what's going to come out? I don't care. He said, I have faith in this. You do it. So that's what happened. I took a leave of absence, and I made appointments with I wrote a hundred scientists. I went to the Book of Knowledge, which is a listing of all the university and research laboratories in the world. Comes out every year. And picked a hundred at random, Nobel laureates and others. And wrote them a letter and asked just one question. Can I come and interview you about your religious convictions or your opinion about the existence of God. It was a very generic term. I did not tell them that I was a religious person of any kind. It was a study. And out of 100 letters, I got, a f I got 50 positive responses. That's unheard of. That's unheard of in surveys. Half. And some of the others, who, uh, the 50 who did not respond positively, said, we wish we could arrange our uh, itinerary and so on to do otherwise. One of them was Werner von Braun. One was Max Born, other, around the world, or at least in many, 13 countries. So I took a leave of absence and did that. And when I came back and published on my own, Hold Reinhardt and Winston wasn't interested. They said, there's not enough sex in this book. I said, it's not about sex, it's about God. Well, we could put a sexy cover on the front. <laughs> And I said, this would be deceitful. And they said, by the time they buy the book, what does it matter? So I tried four or five other publishers, not interested. I finally went to a William Morris agency on, in Manhattan, and uh, the biggest uh, agency of representatives for authors, actors, and so on in the world. 
I, I walk in there, Steve McQueen signing a $5 million contract for a movie. I said, I'm in the right place. I got one of their agents and they said, okay, sign this contract, we get this much fee. I said, okay, find me a publisher. Well, he said, which publisher shall we try first? I said, that's why I came here. And I told them one to try and they took it. If I had tried one more, I wouldn't have had to pay him his fee. <laughs> but anyway, it led to a very interesting uh, avocation which has since become virtually a full-time occupation for me. After the publication of this book, and I'm going to give each one of you a copy, it's no longer in print, and Hans keeps bugging me to update it and so on because I've talked to a great many other scientists since that was published about the same question, including Carl Sagan here on the Cornell campus, Margaret Mead, and, and others. In fact, the, the Sagan interview was quite serendipitous. I've, I worked for a while, and in order to make an adequate living for my family as a freelance writer in addition to textbooks, and I was hired by American Airlines to be their science writer for the in-flight magazine, American Way. And when I took a flight and one of my stories was on the front cover, I'd go down the aisle and say, boy, isn't that interesting? Look at that. <laughs> one of the stories I covered was the joint mission of the American and Russian astronauts. Apollo-Soyuz project and I got to talk to oh, at least 25 or 30 of the space people, Russians and Americans. Very interesting, we could talk a little about that later, but I, well, I will tell you one uh, because it's a Lutheran story. Deke Slayton was one of the first seven astronauts, the right stuff, you know. Well, Deke Slayton was from Sparta, Wisconsin. I was in Racine, Wisconsin, it was about 50 miles away. And when Deke Slayton was scheduled to take his first flight, the news media came streaming through Racine, Wisconsin on the way up to Sparta to see this guy, and I learned he was a Lutheran. Well, just before Deke Slayton was ready to step in there, they found a heart murmur and grounded him. And he was the only one of the seven original ones who didn't fly. But he kept doing the one-armed push-ups and all that stuff that you mentioned last night, and he qualified and 15 years later, he made the cut again. And they sent Deke Slayton up to be one of the three Americans to meet the two Russians, no, other way around. Um, yeah, three Americans, two Russians, who met and shook hands in space. So we were assigned to these guys one at a time with press cards. And when I got to Deke Slayton, I said the first thing, Deke, uh, you go to church. He looked at me, American Airlines Press, and he said, what in the world are you asking me a question like that for? I said, because, Deke, you're a Lutheran, and I'm a Lutheran, and I want to know. And he hung his head, and he said, you know, I kind of let that slip, and I, I let my wife take care of religious things in my family. I said, Deke, your wife is not going up tomorrow. You are. And I got a letter from Deke, a correspondence later, and he said, you know, I thought about your question because I got sick up there. <laughs> I got sick. He also said, by the way, that his job, and this was at a press conference, that his job up there was to arrange all the television cameras properly for the handshake to flash around the world. And they think that the reason they picked him to do that is because he grew up on a farm in Wisconsin 
and was accustomed to shoveling things around. <laughs> so that's a kind of a Deke Slayton story. But nevertheless, the opportunity to uh, write for American Airlines led me to Carl Sagan. Because after writing for American Airlines for some time, they said to me, now you've done all these stories on assignment, what would you like to write? I said, I would like to write an article about the religious beliefs of the world scientists. Really? Okay, go ahead. Go wherever you want and talk whoever you want. I said, well, number one is uh, Carl Sagan. So I got on a payphone and I called Carl Sagan at Cornell and I got right through. And uh, he said, what do you want? I said, I want to come and talk to you about God. He said, come on. I came up here on a Saturday. I walked into his office, his secretary was there, and she said, how did you get in here? Johnny Carson called and he couldn't get an appointment. I said, I don't know, I just called him and I said, I want to talk to him about God. So he came in with his uh, blue jeans. He was just building this house on the cliff or wherever he is now. And we got at it. And we really got at it. <laughs> I have this on tape. <laughs> All those interviews are on tape, but for legal protection. German, English, or whatever language it was. And Carl Sagan told me, I don't believe in God, I believe in the universe. He said, uh, if God is eternal, who made him? I said, I don't know who made him, Carl, but uh, if you're in trouble, why don't you pray the universe and I'll pray to God and we'll compare notes. <laughs> well, he, Carl Sagan is uh, very definitely an apostle for Carl Sagan. I mean, you, you ask people in Parade Magazine who read his, uh, this is a rather interesting piece of marketing. Carl Sagan has a good contract with Parade Magazine. And after a few of his big articles, they will do a survey of readers of Parade Magazine, who's the greatest scientist on earth? Well, Parade Magazine just read this article by Carl Sagan, so he always comes out the winner. I'll show you later that I do agree with Carl Sagan on some very important things, but I do not agree with his religious views, and neither does he agree with the majority, great majority of scientists that I have interviewed in different countries. They definitely are not the kinds of humanistic uh, believers that he is. He's a believer. Everybody's a believer. Don't let anybody kowtow you into thinking that a person who believes in God is a believer and those who do not believe in God are unbelievers. That's absolutely not the way geometry and algebra work. You either believe there is a God or you believe there is no God. Both are items of faith. Both require proof. You have to prove to me that there is no God before I will believe there is no God. That shakes up a lot of kids in my classes in a public college. A professor came in to me when I first started there and he said, don't let people tell you that you cannot mention your religious convictions in this public institution. Every other person can tell about his convictions and you have the American right 
constitutionally to tell where you're coming from. And in 20 years, no student or professor or department chairman or anyone else has ever told me you must not talk about religion in here. That seems to be a kind of a, uh, a method that people use to say, well, you can talk about hedonism, you can talk about humanism, you can talk about new ageism, you can talk about anything else, but don't talk about Christianity in a school that's unconstitutional. That's simply not true. Carl Sagan is not representative of the scientists of his time when it comes to what scientists believe about God. There are a great many astronomers who think that Carl Sagan is not representative of modern astronomy either. He was just doing his uh, Cosmos series when I talked to him. And he said, make no mistake about it, I got the money for this show and I'm going to put in there what I want, whether people agree with it or not. A lot of his Cosmos is good stuff and there is also quite a bit of it that is astronomical rubbish. Somebody told me last night there are a lot better astronomers on the Cornell campus than Carl Sagan. Well, there have to be because he doesn't spend very much time doing astronomy anymore. And if you're out of the field for a few months or years, you're not with it anymore. A brilliant person, but somewhere in his youth, they neglected to teach him how important it is to rely on the maker of this modern miracle of a universe. That's, I think, as simple as it is. If we are not brought into the household of faith, and I'm not saying Christianity to begin with, at least to recognize that there is a maker and a supreme being, we're going to be in hot water. I want to tell you quickly, and then leave time for plenty of discussion about this, what I tell audiences in school and elsewhere, and most recently I've done this at a Rotary Club, how to think about the relationship between the universe, the knowledge of the universe we gain as scientists and technologists, and in the study of scripture about the nature of God. Number one, this is called the cosmological argument. I didn't make that up. The cosmological argument is that modern astronomy points to a creator. The Big Bang Theory requires a banger. You know, Carl Sagan was on a three-man committee last month along with Hugh Downs and somebody else to come up with a new name for the Big Bang Theory because it's considered derogatory. The word Big Bang was coined by Fred Hoyle who does not believe in the Big Bang and that's why he called it that as a joke. And I talked to Fred Hoyle, he's in my book. I said, Dr. Hoyle, and he is the guy who came up with the steady state theory which is at the present time in limbo. The steady state theory is that the universe never began. It is universal, it is eternal. In that respect, Carl Sagan told me, I believe the universe is eternal. It doesn't need, if you tell me there's a God, I'll tell you there's a universe, because what's the difference? 
I said, Dr. Hoyle, do you realize how that upsets people, especially in the churches, when you say that the universe had no beginning? Where does that leave room for God? And Dr. Fred Hoyle told me, please tell people who are upset over my steady state theory for religious reasons not to be upset because I don't believe my theory myself. Unquote. I said, what do you mean you don't believe in your theory yourself? He said, theories are not for believing. God is for believing. Love is for believing. Scientific theories are for challenging and disputing and disproving. I didn't put that theory out as an item of faith. Besides, he said, I have a new one. I said, oh, tell me, I want to publish it. He said, buy my book. <laughs> They're all pushing books. His new book is called Evolution from Outer Space. You know, if you can't figure out where life came from on Earth, and he starts the book by saying, if you leave the elements for uh, a living cell, ammonia and who, what else is required in a biocell in a dish for four, four and a half billion years, which is roughly what many scientists now think is the age of the Earth, all you're going to have at the end of that time is rancid soup. Therefore, he said, it must have come in here fully formed from outer space. Else, why does the same strain of flu, said Fred Hoyle, start in Fiji and Boston on the same day? A new strain of flu. You cannot sneeze it that far in one day. <laughs> well, does that answer the question? Fred Hoyle, evolution from outer space, came in here in a comet's tail? No, it pushes it out there, see? Now it's out there where I let some other guy answer the question, how did it get into outer space? Just like one of the theories of the solar system is, how come the angular momentum of the planets does not match the angular momentum of the sun? If the sun threw out the planets, then the remainder of the angular momentum of the sun should be the same ratio to the planets as their masses are. When I put that on the board in college, I lose half the class because they came and said, I didn't think there was any mathematics in this course. <laughs> well, so the planetesimal hypothesis went down the, dr the drain that the sun flung these out because the sun doesn't have enough spin left. That's in simple language. Well, there's an easy way out, you know. A passing star came and jerked the planets out and then went away. When you need help in a theory, what do you call that method of fine-tuning it before you give it up, you know? They did that with the original Ptolemaic theory. Oh, put a few more epicycles in there and it'll all be okay. But it wasn't okay, so we finally threw it out. And the same thing here. We brought a passing star in and that jerked the planets out and left the sun with its small amount of angular momentum. Well, that doesn't answer the question. It just says, where's that other star? And what is the mathematical probability that such a thing would occur, a near collision between two stars? So the cosmological argument is, Hebrews 11.3, the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. 
that's absolutely in keeping with modern physics. I was invited to be one of a hundred people to go to Fermilab and Stanford for a week at a time to come up with a new curriculum in physics. And at Stanford, we got all these guys in from Harvard and the other places to tell us the latest guts, grand unification theories, guts. And the one guy really had it. He got up there and he said, the universe came into being out of nothing in a variation of a field of force. Question. You're telling me that there was this vibration of the force field and all of a sudden where there was nothing? Now there was something? Yes. He said we must not, now get this one right, we must not think that when there is nothing, it is really nothing. I said, God forbid that I would think that. <laughs> when there was nothing, there was not nothing? No, not. <laughs> there was this urge, and it became a particle, smaller than the smallest atom. I said, isn't that rather unusual? He said, yes, but it only had to happen once. <laughs> That's modern science. We got all done, and we published this book with tax money. Smallest circulation on Earth. It was called Quarks, Quasars, and Quandaries. We each wrote a chapter in here of what we contributed to modern physics. It was on television, and I asked the one guy, how much of this should be put into our textbooks? I'm a textbook writer, so was Dr. Resnick at Rensselaer. He's the leading college physicist. Maybe you had Rensselaer, uh, Resnick, Halliday and Resnick. Do you have blue or orange? All right, was it uh, calculus or non-calculus? <laughs> the engineers got one and the, yeah, okay. So I said, how much of this should we put into the textbooks of today? And the guy said, none of it, except what I said, he said. <laughs> I said, what do you mean none of it? He said, it'll all be different. It'll all be different by the time it gets published. That's what we should write in the textbook. On the first day of my course in physics, I say, nothing in this book is true. And you know what the first reaction is of some kid? Then why do we have to learn it? Very simple answer. To pass next week's test. <laughs> How do you know what isn't true if you don't study it? Now, is that being facetious? It is not. It is being honest. And that's not what textbooks are like today. And when I tell that to an editor, he says, we don't have room in the book to say those philosophical things. You've only got 750 pages. That's where it's at. My editor at Hold is a devout Christian. And he wrote me at Christmas and said, thank God that I have this position for the leading science publisher of America because now I can keep the crazies out of the textbooks. There is an agenda by people to get stuff into the text that will completely destroy their religious faith. That's an agenda. That's not propaganda from the religious right. That is the truth. 
And we as Christians have got to be aware of it and do what we can to change it. I heard this from Paul Harvey. Every time I mention Paul Harvey, people said, who's he? Well, he just happens to be the most widely listened to news commentator in the country for the last generation. I heard him this morning waiting for Hans to get the donuts with his book, The Rest of the Story. Did you ever? Paul Harvey is a terrific newscaster and a deep, he's a, a devout Christian. And he said on the air one day, don't tell me that a monarch butterfly that weighs a 50th of an ounce can fly 4,000 miles back to the same place that his ancestor left four generations earlier without divine guidance. He said, any observer of nature has to believe in God or else make up something really unbelievable, unquote Paul Harvey. I chase eclipses. My 11th one is coming up in South America in November. Every continent, I have yet to meet an atheist there when it occurs.